Well, anyways, let's get into our Bible study tonight. Uh, So our introduction, we're getting close to uh, the end of our Bible study about Bible study, I guess. Uh, We're using How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. Um, A lot of pros and a lot of cons about this book. It's given us a, a good structure to go through, but I definitely do not agree with everything that's in there. So always we have to be discerning with what we read. You can trust the Bible 100%. But if it's a person writing about the Bible, you have to be discerning. So we're pulling out the good, and we're discussing things that we don't agree with necessarily. But the wisdom books definitely deserve some of our attention tonight. Uh, I love the book of Proverbs, and this is one of the four main wisdom books. Uh, But like each genre of Bible book we've studied through, you have to be careful in certain particulars. So our introduction tonight says, as a whole, the Bible can be viewed as a book of wisdom, the entire thing. But four special books dedicate themselves to the topic of wisdom. Each is unique in form, yet communicates powerfully. And each one of these four are, are very diverse. And again, that comes back to the, the style of communication, um, Eastern poetry, uh, Hebrew poetry, different forms like that. Very interesting in how they structure, very unique in how they communicate. Uh, it's entertaining. But again, if you're not paying attention to certain details, it's very, very easy to miss important things. So let's talk just a minute about wisdom in and of itself, uh, just as being practical. The book defines wisdom as the ability to make godly choices in life. That was the the basic definition. So when you think about how you make choices, it's not just what choices you make. How do you come to those conclusions to make that choice? That is a, a massive and powerful thing all in of itself. It is something that exists only when a person thinks and acts according to the truth as he or she makes the many choices that life demands. Choices chart the course of life. Now, those of us who have had a couple years on us, we can look back at our own life and say, I can look and see certain choices that I made when I was younger. And now, throughout the years, how that choice greatly affected the rest of my life. Now, thank the Lord that his overall plans are always going to be fulfilled. But there are definitely variables at at how we get about to some of those ends. And our choices will make a powerful impact on our lives. So we make little choices every day. We make big choices. um, But what brings about that process of how you come to those decisions? Because your choices mean actions. So the type of wisdom we operate by is extremely important. And really, there are only two types of wisdom in the world. The first being worldly wisdom. Now, not necessarily bad, but worldly wisdom is based on human intelligence or experience, and it's directed by personal desires. So you could have somebody who is very worldly wise, but very immoral. Just like you can have somebody that's incredibly intelligent, but very immoral. Uh, My son and I had this discussion the other day. I was like, man, there are a lot of very, very, very intelligent people that are as crooked as all get out. 
They're just brilliant in how they do what's wrong. You could have worldly wisdom and be very, very experienced in life and have figured a lot of things out on a very practical level, but be really immoral with the things that you want to do and the way you go about it. So wisdom in and of itself can be worldly, which is very much different than biblical wisdom. Because that's how you get to things based on God's morality and directed by God's spirit. Now that's the goal for each of us, right? Is to get into the word of God, to get to know him. See, this is how God says things ought to be done. This is the way God views things. And based off of that, say, you know what? That may not be what I want. That may not be how I see it. But if that's what God says, then that's what's correct. And I'm going to change my view. I'm going to change my desires and my direction to say, all right, if God says that's what ought to be done, then that's what I'm going to do. So we literally trust God so much that we look at the Bible and say, that's how I'm going to run my life. Doesn't matter what other people do. That's what I'm going to do. So we run our lives by biblical wisdom. But that's a choice. And we're going to talk about some of those things here uh, under wisdom as a pursuit. But first we need to look at Proverbs 4.23, which says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. The heart in the Old Testament refers to the moral and the volitional faculties that each person has, as well as their intellectual side. So when the Bible says you have to guard your heart, is you need to be careful of your thinking process. You have to be careful of your desires. You have to be careful in the way you process things mentally. It's that whole kit and caboodle all in one term. Now, typically nowadays, we say when you talk about your heart, we typically think our feelings and our desires. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's more of a, an overall life package. And when the Bible talks about the heart, and wisdom, and different things. It it gives us very particular comparisons, shall we say. Proverbs 3, 7, Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord, and depart from evil. So as soon as you think, well, I've I've got some good experience to me, I've seen things pretty well, I I can work my way through this, you better be really careful, because if you think that you can figure things out, you're in trouble. Because there's uh, the warning in Jeremiah 3.22. God says, For my people is foolish. They have not known me. They are sottish children, and they have none understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. So just because you think you've got some experience and you think you know what you're going to do, Proverbs says that a, a man may think he knows the right way, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So we have to be very careful, even as believers, to recognize what, what process am I, am I operating under here? Am I trying to do my best with my own wisdom? Or am I actually looking to the Bible and looking to God to say, how should I proceed Because our decisions are going to be very, very different based on that process or which uh, foundation we're going off of. So from a human perspective, wisdom could be viewed as a combination of natural common sense and personal experience. 
but what is the goal of this kind of wisdom? From a Christian perspective, God's wisdom is far greater guide for our perspectives, our desires, and our choices. So just wisdom in and of itself is really that, that process that guides your life. And you've got to make a decision to use what God is providing to work through that process because the big or the small choices have consequences in our lives. The older we get, I think the more we recognize that. Younger people are just, ah, just making choices. And those of us with some experience are like, hold on, that's a big deal. Use God's wisdom. But here's something else we need to talk about. Wisdom as a pursuit. See, wisdom has been recognized by mankind ever since the beginning. It's been a pursuit of mankind as a whole to figure out the best way to run life. And so people sit down and they do all this thinking to say, you know, what's the better way? Because we see a lot of failure, we see a lot of pain, we see a lot of mistakes, we see a lot of hurts. What's the best way to live life? And they don't necessarily go to God for it, but they try to figure out things on their own. So we can actually look through history all the way back, you know, 2,000 years before the time of Christ, archaeology has dredged up the instructions of Shurupag. This is uh, an ancient, basically, list of proverbs that came out of the Babylonian peoples. Now, unless you know how to read cuneiform, this little wedges in clay, I have no idea what that says. But they've been able to unlock that language for the most part and recognize 2,000 years before the time of Christ, this society was trying to figure out how to do life and to do it successfully. Then you uh, move forward another uh, 1,400 years. I didn't realize Aesop's fables were this old. I remember reading Aesop's fables in grade school in our little learning to read books, and, and I fell in love with the tortoise and the hare and all those different uh, animal stories that, that teach moral concepts. I think my favorite one was the, uh, the crow that was trying to get water out of the bottom of the jar, but his beak couldn't get all the way to the bottom. So he picked up pebbles and kept filling the jar until the water level rose to the point he could drink. It was that kind of visual, that kind of working through a problem. It was like, man, I learned some really good stuff from these simple animal stories. Well, Aesop was a Greek slave that lived 600 years before the time of Christ and he became known for telling these stories. He had hundreds of them. And they were recorded. They've been used uh, throughout history. Very famous. Uh, but you can come uh, even a little bit down the road from there uh, in China. Uh, Confucius, a, a very well-known name. Uh, this guy lived, actually he, he died 475 B.C. But he was a man that very much pursued wisdom. And he wanted to learn from his teachers, and he came up with ideas about government and about morality and say the best way to run your government is to have leaders that are extremely moral. And so he tried to bring a lot of, uh, of change and, and development in his government, and people like, we don't want that, you need to leave. So he would go travel around searching for more wisdom, and he had a lot of followers behind him. And so his writings were cataloged, and that's why they call it the, the Analects of Confucius, you can still buy his writings. Uh, for the last 2,000 years, he is the most read individual in China and has been the most influential writer in Chinese history. 
And a lot of what he said was pretty good for the most part. But mankind has been trying to figure out the best way to do life. Uh, you can even move into the, the Roman uh, period of history where they were in control of much of the Mediterranean. And there were guys like Aristotle and Plato and this fellow Plutarch. Uh, he re- wrote The Parallel Lives. And basically his compilation were taking uh, biographies of well-known people. And saying, here are some of the things that this guy did really well. And he also would throw in stories of this guy really messed up in life. So let's learn by the examples of the lives that we see around us and through history. Trying to figure out a better way to live life. And there are you know, dozens and dozens of other examples we could use throughout history. These are some of the bigger ones. But wisdom has been a pursuit of mankind for a long, long time. So there are two aspects we need to talk about. Mankind as a whole has been trying to get a hold of a better way to live, but wisdom is purposely transferred. You've got to make an effort to pass on wisdom. Sometimes we just kind of hope that we raise our kids and they're going to do better than we do. But we don't purposely try to sit them down and pump some wisdom into them. We just hope they get it. Well, folks, if you don't aim, you're never going to hit your target, right? So we need to be purposeful in the transferring of wisdom. Now, I, I got kind of uh, ornery with the book here real quick because uh, the, offer, uh, the authors made the statement uh, about institutions teaching kids and they need to do a good job. And I started writing ferociously next to that, that paragraph. I'm like, yeah, but the best wisdom is passed on from the home. And so I got done with my little tirade on the side of the making notes and I read the next paragraph and he's like, well, basically the best wisdom is passed on at the home. So I grabbed my eraser and <laughs> backed it all off. I'm like, okay, good job, guys. I just got a little upset before reading the whole thing. Uh, But the more a society gets away from that home model, the more easily children can be captured by the influence of those in control of the educational system. And we have, to our own demise, seen this greatly in America. It's been very, very easy to send our kids off to public education because it's cheaper, and that way we can do other things, and we just trust the government to train our kids. Trust the government. Probably three words we really need to rethink, because those who are in charge of the educational system have not been on our side. They have a very specific agenda. Now, some of the people that are in that system, teachers, are doing their very, very best. But there has been a huge influx of folks that have a very, very sick and twisted agenda. I believe it goes all the way back to John Dewey when they started to change things very, very slowly at the beginning. Going back to the the 60s with the the hippies growing up and have all these wild ideas. And then 15, 20 years down the road, those are the professors now in college with some of those same backdoor philosophies that are being, uh, being taught in the college classrooms. And then those people grow up and become the influential leaders that we see now. And what we see on college campuses is absolutely frightening. 
Folks, our educational system needs to be based on what is being taught at home. It's important. If you want your kids to grow up and to have certain beliefs and certain views and certain understandings of things, you and I are in charge of doing that. We cannot leave those things to other people because those other people have their own goals and desires. Wise and godly parents will intentionally cite God as the source of the wisdom they pass on. There are parents that do a great job of raising their kids, but if there is not a direct link to saying, look, the reason we do what we do is because God says this. The reason we take a stand is because God taught it to us in our word, and that's what we're going to stand on. We need to be very, very intentional on how we pass on wisdom so that it is unmistakable to young minds where we get that wisdom. So being intentional in the giving of wisdom is crucial. But then secondly, wisdom is willingly received. And this is where it could get a little frustrating, whether being a parent or whether being an educator or somebody that's just trying to invest in other people. That person you're trying to invest in needs to be willing to receive what you're giving. It's the whole don't throw your pearls before swine concept. Does this person want to receive what is being given? Because what's being given is extremely valuable, but it's maybe falling on deaf ears or a hard heart. Wisdom, as far as being received, is begun where we see in Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So that process of taking in wisdom begins with your attitude toward God. And the word fear, there's a lot that is encapsulated in that term because it's not just a a reverential quaking in your bones, which that is part of it, but God is scary. God is awesome. He deserves our fear. But it's also an amazing respect level for God. So that if I think one thing, and God clearly says in the Bible, he thinks something else, I know who's right, and it's not me. So that respect level and that, that reverential fear begins the process saying, all right, I know I'm not right, but God is. Excellent, excellent attitude. That's where you're going to be able to start. Because if you don't have that, you're constantly going to be challenging everything. Well, I know God says that, but I feel this. Who cares what you feel? You're not right. Yeah, but I feel or I think. Who cares what you think? You're not right. You're going to be butting heads with God all the time. You've got to start with the fear of the Lord. So when a person has the fear of God in them, now their attitude changes. It says in Proverbs 6.23, the commandment is a lamp and the law is light. So right there we get one of those uh, Hebrew poetry things, right? So is this two lines of uh, repetition? Is this two lines of building? Or is this two lines of um, contrast? Which one is this? Repeating the concept, building the concept, or contrasting the concept? What do you think? 
It's definitely not the contrast. So it's either repeating for emphasis or it's building more information. The commandment is a lamp. The law is light. So, so it's actually repeating for emphasis because a lamp and a light, same thing. It's illuminating the way. Both are giving that same concept. So the commandment is a lamp, the law is light, and the reproofs of instruction are the way of life. To reprove is to be corrected. You're being instructed in a way to say, you know what, you're wrong. Here's what you need to do instead. Now, I think most of us have lived long enough where we know that whole process right there of being corrected and educated could come very gently or it could come very harshly. Sometimes it depends on our attitude receiving it. Sometimes it depends on the person who's doing the correcting. They don't always do it the right way. Sometimes people try to do it in a very gentle but clear way, and we just don't receive it well. Folks, being corrected is just part of life. We've got to get used to that and benefit from it. And, and as soon as a young person gets that attitude where I can be corrected, I'm not going to start bawling and fall apart. I'm not going to hate the person correcting me. I'm going to see it for what it is. I need to change. And you know what? Whether you did it right or not, gently or not, clearly or not, I appreciate the fact that you're investing in me to correct me. Thank you. That person with the right attitude about God and the right attitude about correction, that person's going to succeed in life because they're going to be able to change, see their own mistakes, and grow. So the desire for wisdom must combine with two important things. Write these down. Teachability and humility. Got to have those two things. Got to. Life gets really, really rough if you don't have teachability and you don't have humility. So for a person to actually receive wisdom godly wisdom so they can improve life. They've got to start with the right view of God. They've got to develop an attitude that's teachable and humble. And even then, they may fall short and not get a hold of wisdom. Because number three, you've got to have effort. Grab your Bibles, turn to Proverbs 2, verse 1 through 4. If I remember, I'm going to make a little note about kids in Christian homes when we get done with this point. Proverbs 2, 1 through 4. Oh, I'm in Psalms. That's not going to help. Yep, right next to him. Pretty close. There we go. Proverbs 2, 1 through 4. My son... If thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with me, with thee, so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thine heart to understanding. Yea, if thou criest after knowledge and liftest up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as for hid treasures, then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. If a person genuinely wants the wisdom of God, wants to know how to live life the best way possible, they're going to have to put some effort into it. They have to. 
They have to work a little bit. Now the beautiful thing, and please turn over to Proverbs 8, 1 through 9, is that all of this wisdom from God is right there ready to be given. But God sets this up in a way that, hey, I got it for you, and you can have it as soon as you do some work and get it. I've got it here at the house. You just got to come on in. You just got to sit and do some listening. Okay, Proverbs uh, chapter not 8, excuse me, Proverbs 8, one, uh, verse 1 says, Doth not wisdom cry, and understanding put forth her voice? She standeth in the top of high places by the way in the places of the paths, basically at the junction of two roads, a very busy, uh, heavily traveled section. She crieth at the gates, at the entry of the city, at the coming in at the doors. That's where everybody's coming in and out and doing business. Verse 4, Unto you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of man. O ye simple, understand wisdom. Ye fools, be of an understanding heart. Hear, for I will speak of excellent things, and the opening of my lips shall be right things. For my mouth shall speak truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are in righteousness, and there's nothing forward or perverse in them. They are all plain to him that hath understanding, and right to them that find knowledge. Receive my instruction, and not silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. The book of Proverbs sets wisdom up, this most valuable thing, as a woman. Desirable, wise, strong. And Solomon is telling his sons more than anything else in this life, you need to pursue her. You get a hold of her more than making a fortune, more than any other type of prosperity you can think of. Guys, get a hold of her. And this passage says that she is out there where everybody's at, calling out an invitation. You want wisdom? Come on over and get it, guys. I will provide for you. In fact, in your study section at the end of the night, you're going to get another passage uh, that, again, is wisdom giving an invitation to people and, and a very particular illustration of how she's making that invitation but the invitation has to be received. And this is where we need to be very careful. We need to be willing to go after wisdom. And parents, let me give you a little hint. You can tell your kids all day long, you need to follow God. You need to seek God with all your heart. But I can tell you right now what your kids are going to be thinking in their heads. Well, if you don't, I guess it's really not that important. But if your kids see you seeking God, that is going to be proving a point that, yes, God is worth seeking, that you're operating your life on what you are seeking after. Parents, even more than your words, your kids are watching your actions because they are hypocrisy sniffers. They are. You go work in that, that youth group for a while. They sniff a hypocrite just like that. And if you encourage them spiritually, but they watch you and you don't live that same spiritual truth, they're like, yeah, whatever. You get the, no time, no attention whatsoever. 
but a parent that is personally seeking God themselves and then says, hey, you need to get a hold of this. This is going to change your life. This is how you need to operate. They're going to look at you and say, well, that's the way you operate. And I see off of your life, yeah, it is worthwhile. That's a powerful message, folks. We're not going to be perfect. But if our kids see us seeking God genuinely and growing, they're going to want it to. They're going to get the best encouragement from you that they could ever get. But they need to see it as well as hear it. So when wisdom makes her offer, have you personally pursued that? Do you have the right attitude before God to say, hey, if God's right, uh, or if God says one thing, I say something else, God's the one that's right, and I've got a teachable and humble attitude to seek God, and I'm making the effort to get to know him and use what he's teaching me, you're doing okay. You're going to be the example your kids need. So please, let's marry those things, all three of those points, as an example. Our quote here, the school of wisdom provides a gentler environment than the school of hard knocks. I don't know about you, but I've spent plenty of, plenty of classroom time in the school of hard knocks because I'm kind of stubborn, and I need to experience things to really have that lesson driven deep. If you can look at somebody else's life and learn a lesson, it is so much better, so much easier to just sit in that school and sit in that class, learn from other people, learn from the Bible, trust it, live that way. You don't have to spend near as much time in the school of hard knocks. You really don't. So those are the concepts we really, really need to understand. What is wisdom? It is a desirable thing, the best way to live life. God sets that up. People do a good job. They, they pick out good principles you can read uh, a lot of those examples of, of ancient literature, and you get them on Audible nowadays. Listen to them while you drive. You're going to pick out some good stuff, but you have to remember that's manly wisdom, worldly wisdom. If you want the best, then you've got to go to the Bible. Start with the right attitude toward God, have a, te- a teachable and humble spirit, and put in the effort to learn. Be in the Word. Be in church. Use it. God's not only going to change you guaranteed, but he's also going to use you as an example to others around you. So in going over those concepts, now let's look at the four wisdom books. Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. We're not going to take a ton of time on this. I just want to give you an overview because each one of these wisdom books is very, very different in its communication style, but it's, it's amazing. It takes a bit of work to get through some of them, but what you glean, what you pull out of it is so worth the effort. Book of Job. This is speculative wisdom. That's the fancy word our study book gives. And it specifically uses dialogue. So you have Job sitting down with three of his friends and they're discussing why Job's life is full of pain right now. You read the beginning of Job, and you know that it's actually God and Satan in a contest for God's glory. Does Job love God simply because of all God's blessings? Or does Job love God because he's God? God says, no, Job's going to stay faithful because he loves me. And and you could take away all the blessings. He's still going to love and stay faithful to me. And Satan says, no, he doesn't. He's a man. He's just after his own skin. He doesn't actually love you. 
So God says, all right, let's put Job to the test. He's going to stay faithful. And so Job is put to the test. So overall, the main plot that we see in the book of Job is God allows Satan to mercilessly test Job. Job's response will reveal if his dedication to God is based on his love for God or is based on a selfish desire for God's blessings. That's your main plot. You get that set up for you in chapter 1. But there's also a subplot. This is the bulk of the book of Job, and this is where Job's three friends use human wisdom to try and convince Job that he is suffering due to God's wrath over Job's sin. And Job is, uh, after each one of those explanations, defending himself as being innocent, being confused, and, and just hurting. At the end of the book of Job, God addresses Job's ignorance and displays his sovereignty. And in each one of those discussions, each one of his friends taking a turn saying, this is, in my experience, why you're hurting. Or another friend says, because of what we've seen in life, this is why you're hurting. Or because nobody is perfect, this is why you're hurting. After each one of those attempts, an explanation, in very, very flowery ways, very, uh, very full of illustration, Job says, nope, disagree, I'm just hurting here. And then another friend says their piece, and Job responds. And another guy says his piece, and Job responds. And then they all take another turn again. So it's a rather long, drawn-out point, and you really got to work through each one of those dialogue pieces to get what the guy's talking about. It's poetic form. But if you're willing to do the study, you can see what's there, and you learn a lot. And through that, you get a timeless application. You, work, you walk away from this book with the understanding that the book of Job reveals that there is more going on in this world than we see or understand. We think it's about what's happening in our lives. Oh, no, friend, it's not. If you're a child of God, God is doing much more than just what you know of. So when we want to say, God, if I just understood what, why this is happening, I'd feel so much better. Actually, you probably wouldn't. In fact, if God laid all of that out there, it'd probably scare us so much we'd stay at home all the time, curled up in a ball in the basement. Uh, Point number two, our lives are a means to give or deny God the glory he deserves. That's what was happening in Job's life. His difficulties were a contest to give God glory. Thank God he did. Another thing we can walk away uh, from the book of Job with is that man's limited understanding and short-sighted reasoning are contrasted with God's unlimited wisdom and full authority. So seeing that dynamic, seeing that comparison is very, very valuable. God knows what he's doing. People don't. We may sound very eloquent. We may sound very educated, but we don't know. God does. So that's a great reminder through the book of Job. Book of Proverbs probably one of my favorite books of the Bible, is prudential wisdom, something very uh, prudent, (laughs) I guess, prudential wisdom. The major form of communication here is using maxims. Maxims are short, memorable statements of truth. They don't explain every detail of that truth. They just give you something short and sweet that you can go home with. Uh, Bird in hand is worth two in the bush. That's a maxim. Um, A stitch in time saves nine. 
that's a short maxim, things like that. Uh, that's basically what Proverbs is composed of. The main emphasis in the book is a message from Solomon to his son. My son, be teachable. God's wisdom is the most valuable commodity in life. It's literally going to steer all of your decisions, so get it. The Proverbs use insightful descriptions, relatable illustrations, familiar examples, harsh contrasts, and compassionate encouragements to entice and educate the reader. Next blank, practical areas of life are addressed. Things like your attitude, your words, marital and social relationships, finances, child-rearing, business ethics, sexual boundaries, morality, authority, on and on and on. You want something practical? A couple of verses of Proverbs every single day. I find it hard to get through the book of Proverbs because there is so much in there to learn. It's like I can't read it a chapter at a time. It's too much. I could just sit there with a couple verses each day and really get a lot. Ecclesiastes. This is a book of cynical wisdom, and the main form of communication is address. So this is Solomon, also known as the preacher. Uh, Main lesson here is even good pursuits in life will ultimately result in emptiness and frustration. Having God at the center of your life is the only way to gain true meaning and joy. The preacher motivates his reader by presenting, this is interesting, the dark side of human-centered efforts. Ecclesiastes is a dark book. It's depressing. It's literally Solomon saying, I'm going to figure out this whole wisdom thing and being the wisest man in the world He's like, I'm going to go through every single way a person can be happy. He built things. He enjoyed physical pleasure. He figured out proverbs and insightful mysteries. He did it, he did it, he did it. And at the end of every single pursuit, he's like, man, life is still empty. Everything I've, I've just acquired, everything that I've done, everything I've built, I die and it, should, it could be passed on to a moron and all fall apart. So it was pretty dark but he's, he's looking at life through human worldly wisdom. And when he gets to the end of the book, he's like, you know what? You know what I, the conclusion I come to? Follow God. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. God has to be the center of what I do for it to really, truly be meaningful in this life. There's a guy that did everything that you could possibly do to be happy, and he wasn't until he said God's got to be at the center. But it's in a long, drawn-out discussion of all these different topics, beautifully written, dark, but has got a powerful truth right there at the end. Song of Solomon. To me, one of the more difficult books. This is lyric wisdom. It uses a form of communication of Eastern poetical ballad. A long musical story, basically. Again, being translated into English, we lose a lot of the beautiful poetical side of it, the rhymes and the cadences and things like that. Uh, Hebrew poetry is very, very different than anything we have in English. But we can still get the truth there. So the main presentation, it's an extended ballad about human romance. Main interpretation, 
hang in with me here to the end. Uh, our authors of our study book, Fee and Stewart, warn against interpreting this book using certain methods. And the first method they warn against is, is using totality transfer. Like, okay, I'm totally not familiar with this. What are, what are you talking about? That's where you take every single detail in the book and you link it to another scriptural concept. Uh, concept. So getting really detailed, every verse has got to have important meaning that I can take to another verse. Now, normally that sounds like a pretty smart thing to do. He's like, but this is lyrical wisdom. This is a ballad. Be careful of doing that because it wasn't intended to be done like that. Another thing he warns against is allegorizing. And that's basically um, saying that everything here parallels or illustrates a relationship that ought to be between God and his people. So it's not just Solomon and the, the Shulamite. This is between God and his people. So I'm studying through the, this chapter. I'm like, yeah, but I, I kind of disagree with you. There, there's got to be more to it than just the beauties of, of a marital relationship. There's got to be some spiritual aspect to this, right? So the authors encourage a practical straightforward interpretation of the Song of Solomon. This would mean that the poem only communicates the moral virtues of a faithful, passionate, monogamous, heterosexual marriage relationship. Which, in and of itself, that is a really powerful and wonderful thing to communicate. But is it saying more? Is there a spiritual application to this book? I believe there is. But I'll be honest with you, I haven't done a deep dive into this book yet. I haven't studied deeply into this book. I've done a surface level, so I can't give you any more than that at this point. So I'm sorry if that disappoints you a little bit. I don't know everything, and I never will. But I'm not going to tell you what I don't know. But I am going to tell you that I got an itch and feeling there's more to it than the, the, felt, the uh, authors of our study book have gone. So yet another area I disagree with them, but that's okay. Yeah, stay discerning. As mankind continues his search for wisdom, we will, hopefully, we will point them to the preserved collection that God has provided. Will we draw attention to this source by living in ourselves? Again, I want to encourage you to not only pursue and live by the wisdom of God, but as people see that you are different in what you do and why you do it, be very intentional to point them to why. Well, this is, this is what God says ought to be done. So this is how I'm going to live my life. It's not the norm. It may not even make sense to you. But if God says that this is the right way to do it, that's what I'm going to do. And as people see you benefit, as people see your, your stability, as they see your confidence, if they see your happiness and your peace in doing what you're doing because God says to do it like that, that's going to be a powerful draw, folks. Make sure you're telling them specifically why. It's because this is the wisdom of God. I'm just doing my best. <laughs> Every time I've done it my way, I usually get in trouble. But I do it God's way, it works out a whole lot better. You've got about 11 minutes. Uh, the first two questions shouldn't take you very long. And I would encourage you to uh, get those answers down as quickly as you can. But that last and third question on the top of page 38... That ought to make for some interesting conversation. So I'm encouraged to, 
uh, to hopefully have you guys get to that point. If you have any questions, uh, just go ahead and stick a hand up. I'll come by and do the best I can for you. But break up into your study groups. If you see anybody that is not a normal here, then please pull them into your group, all right?